Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first 18 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I have probably mentioned to you before, in terms of my story, I became a Christian when I was in my last year of high school here in Broward County, Florida. And I became a Christian through a church And in that church, they began to tell me what Christians should be doing. And I deeply appreciate the kind of things they told me. And I didn't know any better, so I just did those things. They said Christians should read their Bibles. And so I started reading my Bible. And they said, well, Christians should pray. And I wasn't in the habit of praying, except when I'd gotten myself into a a big fix that I couldn't get out of, and then then I would pray urgently. Uh, but I started praying. And they said, well, Christians gather together for worship and, and to, to hear God's Word preached. And so I began to gather for worship. And they said, Christians should be baptized. And so I was baptized. And I appreciate that they gave me these instructions that have carried through with me. They said, Christians should, should share their faith with others. And they taught me how to do that. And so I started doing that. I didn't know any better. And so these are the kind of things that I started doing, and I'm so glad they told me these things. And by the way, if you haven't gotten the memo about these things, these are things that Christians do in order to grow in their faith and in order to extend the faith to others. Now, I hadn't read the Bible before, and so I started reading the Bible. I don't remember where I started, but I do remember reading the Gospels somewhere along the way pretty early on. And I remember reading Matthew and reading Mark, and then as I started reading Mark, I thought, I think I've already read this somewhere. And then I kept reading, and I think, I, I think I've already read this somewhere in Matthew. And then I read Luke. And then I uh, had the same impression that it was different, but I kept coming up with expressions and stories and uh, teachings. And I think, I think I've already read that before. And I began to see 
that Matthew, Mark, and Luke repeated much of the same material, but also added new things. And then I got to the Gospel of John. And when I got to the Gospel of John, I was faced with something almost entirely different. It was still a story about the main character, about Jesus. But the presentation was so very different. It was, on the one hand, simpler language, but it was at the same time very exalted in heavenly concepts. It didn't have the parables that I was used to from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it didn't have the same chronology because Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on Jesus being in Judea, I'm sorry, in Galilee in the north, and John talks about much of his ministry in the south in Judea. And I was thrilled that, that these, these stories of Jesus fit together and filled each other out. We come to this Gospel of John, this fourth Gospel, and we will find, after having been in this series about the parables and gotten a taste of the the first three Gospels, we will find a different flavor here. He's very direct, and he's very simple. It's the, the Gospel that we often give to new people to introduce them to Christianity, and it's the Gospel that confounds scholars as they pour over the depths of its teaching. And so we're going to be basking in this amazing teaching for the next few months. And John doesn't pull any punches in this Gospel. We we notice in the first three Gospels that that there's a mystery and that that Jesus is is keeping people from understanding who He is at first and He's speaking obliquely and in parables and and giving giving them a little bit of information. But John just comes out and says these famous words, In the beginning was the Word. And that immediately arrests our attention. If we know anything about the Bible, we know that the first book of the Bible begins with these same words. In the beginning, God. But what John tells us here is, in the beginning was the Word. And then he tells us about this Word. And he says that this Word was with God. So this Word was accompanying God, this word was close to God, alongside of God, and then he says, and the word was God. Now you may have had people tell you, knock on your doors and tell you that that's not how this should be translated. That is how this should be translated. Whether or not you believe what this says, there is really no grammatical way around this. This first verse of John is teaching us that there is something or someone called the Word, that this Word is both with God, that is distinct from God, accompanying God, and this Word is God Himself. You may recognize that this is two-thirds of the doctrine that is often called the Trinity. The idea that there is one God, and that that God in Himself is plural. That that God exists as more than one person. And we have those two persons here, called God and the Word. Later on in John, we'll get to the third person. That's just the first verse. And then he says in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, in case we didn't get that. Verse 3, he says, All things were made through Him. 
and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, what does this sound like? This sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? If we go back to Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? He did it by doing what? By speaking, by using his word. And now it's saying that this word is the agent of creation. All things were made through this word. And then in verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That also sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? God in Genesis 1 gives life to all living creatures. And he also, what is the very first thing he creates after creating the heavens and the earth? When he begins to order it, he says, let there be light. And so this is a reflection of Genesis chapter 1. And it says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this word overcome can be translated overcome, or it can be translated comprehend. And uh, I want you to notice as we go through John, that John does something very clever. Sometimes it seems like he is using intentional ambiguity. He is using words that have two different meanings, and we're left wondering which of the meanings he means. And he may be gesturing in both directions at the same time. And we'll see this throughout, but I'm just giving you a heads up as these things come throughout John. The darkness has not overcome it, or the darkness has not comprehended it. Comprehended, has not understood the light. The light has come into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood what the light is all about. Another thing, keep an eye out for this in John. John loves to use these contrasting images. Light and darkness, life and death. And we will see these contrasting images all throughout this gospel. Then, rather abruptly, after after speaking of, of cosmic things, creation and light and life, he says, there was a man, in verse 6. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. Now, in the other Gospels, he's known as John the Baptist. But here he's simply called John. His name was John. And in verse 7, we see what his job was. It says, he came as a what? Witness. He came as a witness. Now, make a mental note of that, because all through this Gospel, the author will be calling witnesses. And he will be calling witnesses to declare what they know about the main subject of this book. And John is the first witness that he calls. It says that he called, uh, he, he came as a witness to bear witness, to testify about the light. He was not the light. I'm sorry, go back to seven. Let me finish that verse. To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And so, uh, right from the beginning, the author of this book is telling us why he's writing the book. And he will summarize that at the end. He'll tell us again why he's writing the book. But he is calling witnesses. And the witnesses stand in the witness box, as it were, and they declare what they know about this one who is so far, so far called the Word, and now he is called the Light. And there is a purpose here. There is a persuasive purpose about these witnesses. Why, in a courtroom situation, do the lawyers call witnesses? They want to convince, don't they? They're not trying to put on an oratorical display. 
They're not trying to please. They're trying to convince the judge or convince the jury. That's why these witnesses are being called. So that they might convince us to do something. And that something is to believe in the one who is called the Word and who is called the Light. All these witnesses, and we need to pay attention to these witnesses and decide if these witnesses are credible witnesses and we need to hear what they say and then we should be convinced by what they say and the result of being convinced is that we would believe. Believe. And then he goes on to talk about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone. John wasn't that light in verse 8. But that true light gives light to everyone coming into the world. He comes into the world. He illuminates the world. But there's a tragedy that is introduced right from the start. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Now, a little bit about vocabulary here. Because the word world shows up in the Gospel of John very, very frequently. The word world. And sometimes, sometimes it may be neutral. It may simply be describing the created order. But almost always, it's negative. It's negative. That is to say, the world order, the human order that resists God. The human order in rebellion against God. And that fits well here. It says that the, He was in the world, He was in this human order, the created order, and this whole world, the human order, was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Even though He was in the midst, and even though He was the Creator thereof. Now, if... If uh, if we go back to verse 5, this might tip the scales toward comprehend instead of overcome. So look at verse 10. He was in the world, the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. And this is a theme that we will find all through John, particularly the first part of John this rejection of this Word that has come into His own world. And we find that it gets even more personal. Verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Now, we don't yet know who His own are. They're, as yet, they are unnamed. But as we read, we will find who these His own are. But even His own people, whom we'll meet later, did not receive Him. But, in verse 12, but... Some did. Some were persuaded by the witnesses. Some did receive Him. And to all who did receive Him, and what does it mean to receive Him? Here it's described. Who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Here it's describing not the natural birth, but it's describing the new birth. And we will get to the new birth again. The new birth to become children of God. That will come again in chapter 3 at length. And here John is, is just planting some ideas, some concepts, some, some, uh, some big themes. And he's going to get back to those later and describe them in more detail. But we need to, to see right from the beginning that if anyone is born of God, if anyone becomes a child of God through believing in the name of the Word who is the light 
That person did not do that on his own or on her own. Look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. This is not a question simply of of procreation. It is not a question of human effort. It is not a question of trying. It is a question of believing in the name that is in the person of the Word who is the light. Now, we have something startling that takes place in verse 14. Because now John, after going back, John the author that is, going going and talking about John the Baptist, now he goes back and returns to the concept of the Word from verses 1 and 2. The Word. And in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is, this is quite shocking. Because what did we learn about the Word in verse 1? We learned that this Word is with God, and this Word is Himself God. And here, the author says, this Word became flesh. And just like in English, this word flesh is a little bit edgy. It's almost crass. He could have chosen a a more elegant word. He could have said, the Word became human. Or, the Word became a body. But he he chose the word that was the most fleshy word he could. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And flesh in John has that same impact that it has for us in English. It's, it seems almost vile. It seems almost tainted. It seems, it seems almost crass. And that's the point. That is how close he got to us. He became just what we are. He took on exactly the same stuff of which we are made. He became a true human. Not a make-believe human, not a partial human, not a mixture human, not a semi-human, not a pseudo-human. He became flesh. This stuff. He became what we are. And it says that He dwelt among us. And this is picturesque here. Uh, he, he tent camped among us. He pitched his tent among us. Now for the, the Israelites, that would immediately bring up an image from the Old Testament. Because when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they lived in tents, but in the middle of all of their tents, what was there? There was a tent. It was a huge tent. It was called the tabernacle. And that's where God symbolically dwelt. He dwelt in the midst of His people. And do you know what they saw when they looked at the tent, when God was symbolically coming and going? They saw His glory. And it was the glory of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He filled that temple with His glorious presence. And so now we read that this Word became flesh, and He made His tabernacle, His tent among us. And what did we see? We have seen His glory. 
We have seen His glory. And then He describes the glory that we saw. The glory as of the only one from the Father. Now we have another title. How many titles do we have so far? We have that this one is the Word. We also have that He is the Light. And now we have a third title. And that is the Only One. Or the One and Only. If you look at verse 14, it says, Glory as of the only one from the Father. It actually, the text doesn't say, doesn't say Son. That's a word that will come later. And it's, it's not a bad translation because we're talking about the Father. And so we would expect the one who is with the Father would be the Son. And we find out that later. But at this point, all it says is that He is the only one, or rather the one and only. But in English, we need to see the, we need to say the only what. And so we fill it in with the only Son from the Father. And so what's happening here? Uh, it would have been amazing. It would have been impressive, wouldn't it? We're, we're in the desert with the Israelites, and this pillar of fire comes, and this pillar of cloud comes and goes, and we would have been in awe of that spectacle and all the things that, that God did through the Israelite or for the Israelites through His presence. But now it's saying, now, if you really want to see, if you really want to see God's glory, you need to look at the Word who has become flesh, and you need to look at the light who has come into the darkness, and you need to look at the only one from the Father. That's where you will really see the greatest manifestation of God's glory. Now, it says that He is characterized by two things. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. In the end of verse 14. Then there's a parenthetical statement in verse 15. John uh, crying out and declaring that, that, G, that uh, this word was before him and ranks before him. And then if you go from 14 to 16, it talks about that he's full of grace and truth in 14. 16, it says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, this, this expression, grace upon grace, this preposition upon doesn't usually mean upon um, and this may not be the best way to translate it. It usually means instead of, instead of. But that may be difficult and is difficult for many translators to figure out how it is grace instead of grace. But if we keep reading, it says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And often we interpret that saying, well, the law uh, was in the past... And now, instead of the law, we have grace and truth. So, grace and truth began to come with the coming of this Word who became flesh. However, I think it's, it's possible and probably preferable to read it this way. Uh, from His fullness, we have all received grace instead of grace. That is, there was a grace, a certain type of grace in the past. But now, instead of that, that grace, which was not complete, which was partial, which was given, now we have the fullness of grace that has come to us. Let's, let's read this again. For of His fullness, from His fullness, we have received grace instead of grace. For the law was given through Moses, and there was a certain grace in the giving of the law. And by the way, what is grace? 
Grace is favor toward the rebellious. Grace is favor toward the rebellious. And we've already seen darkness. We've already seen rejection of the Word. We've already detected rebelliousness here. And so now we find grace, favor towards those who are in the darkness, in the rebellion. And it says, yes, the law was given through Moses. It it came indirectly. It came through this mediator Moses. And there was a certain, a certain favor in the law. The law in itself is a good thing. And it is a a favorable thing to, for God to have given in a mediated way through Moses. But now it says grace and truth were not just given, but what did they do? They came. They came through Jesus Christ. And I've been trying very hard not to say His name because it doesn't give us a a human name until now, verse 17. Now I'm guessing that you astute hearers and readers figured out who this Word was and who this light was who became flesh. But now, only in verse 17 do we have a human name. And why in verse 17? Well, He became flesh. He became a human in verse 14, and now he needs a name. And it's a very common name, Joshua, Jesus. And there's a title that goes with that name, Christ, the the Messiah, uh, the Anointed One from God. So now we have grace instead of grace. That is, maximum grace instead of partial grace. Fullness of grace instead of some grace. And where do we get that? If we're going to get grace from God, if we're going to get favor from God, if we're going to have a God who is favorable toward us, how can we have that favor? Through whom can we get that favor? The only way, the only one who can give us that favor is the Word become flesh, who is Jesus Christ. And notice something. Notice that um, this is something that we must receive. Look at verse 15. For from His fullness we have all received grace instead of grace. You see, grace by definition is something that you cannot achieve, but that you must receive. It is favor after all. It is gift after all. And the only way to have that favor from God is to receive it through Jesus Christ. Now, the conclusion here says, no one has ever seen God. And that is a, uh, an axiom from the Old Testament. That you cannot, a rebellious sinner cannot see God and live. And um, it says, no one has seen God. And then it says, the one and only, that same expression that we already saw, the only one, God, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Did you see how verse 18 did exactly what verse 1 did? It said that the only God, who is Himself God, and where is that only God, only one who is also, who is God? He is at the Father's side. So in verse 1 we have the Word who is with God and is God. And then in verse 18 we have the only God who is with the Father. And that only God has made the Father known. Now, we have, we have sword here, haven't we? We have soared to some very exalted uh, concepts here. But, but let's bring it, back, bring it back to what's the big idea and what's the importance of these ideas. By the way, what does, what does a word do or what do words do 
they reveal, don't they? At least that's what they're supposed to do. What does light do? It does the same thing, doesn't it? So the two big images here point in the direction of God revealing. And that's what the last verse says. That in the only one, we see God. We, we have Him revealed and we can hear Him as well. Now, in the, the first few verses, we find elements of two of the most important and most conceptually difficult doctrines or beliefs of the Christian faith. And those are these two. The first one we already mentioned, well, we mentioned both, but the first one is that there is one God who exists in more than one person. That's the first uh, belief. And that's often called the doctrine of the Trinity. The second is that there is a person who is called Jesus Christ, and He is fully God, and He is fully human at the same time. Now, this is remarkable, that these two conceptually difficult doctrines, John doesn't save these until the end. He doesn't warm us up with some easier things. He presents these in the very first verses of the Gospel. And now he's going to call witnesses to testify that these things are true. Now, it's easy to see, and I think we can be sympathetic with those who are skeptical, it's easy to see why people might reject these ideas, and you may not be convinced of these ideas yet either. Uh, they, they may seem to you to be contradictory. How can there be one God and that same God be three persons? And how can there be a, a person who is both fully God and fully human? Uh, and that may seem contradictory to you. Um, however, I'd like to point out that Christian theology is not the only, only discipline, if you will, that has ideas that are apparently contradictory, but are believed. Uh, for example, if you talk with a physicist, and I did this week because we happen to have one in our church, and ask the physicist, what is... Let's do an easy question. What is light? Because we're talking about light, right? What is light? Well, you will probably get an answer, something like this. Well, we're not exactly sure, but we know that light has a dual existence. And uh, we call this the, the wave-particle duality of light. And light acts like bursts of particles, and light also acts like waves. So we want to say, well, which is it? And the physicist says, well, it's both. Now, how, how can that work? Well, that's what we believe because that's what we find the evidence to say. Philosophy. I was listening to a podcast this, this week, and it was about free will. It was about free will. And these were philosophers, I think one was from the University of Oxford. These were high-powered philosophers. And they began and they ended basically in the same conundrum. They said, we look at this universe and we find that many things are determined in this universe. It looks like there are laws in the universe and the way our minds work and so on. They're, they're determined and predetermined. 
uh, by these by these physical laws and by by biology and so on. And yet, at the same time, we believe that we exercise choice and that we are responsible for our actions. And they talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And they say, well, this is called compatibilism. Compatibilism. And it's just like what the the uh, the physicists are doing as well. They're saying, we see this, and we see that, and we don't see how they fit together, and we can't explain how these two things fit together, but we believe in both. Well, I say, okay, good. Then we're not the only ones. We Christians are not the only ones. We look at the evidence, just like you do, and we make conclusions based on what is revealed to us. And what is revealed to us is that there is one God who exists in more than one person, and there is one who is from God, who is God, and who is fully human as well. Now, this is not, um, this is not, and I hope it, hope it is in any way, and it's not meant to be a theology lecture, um, because these are very practical ideas. And, and I want you to see the practicality. If we consider for a, a little while our human condition, the human condition in which we find ourselves, then we will come up with some very big questions, won't we? Um, one of the questions will be this. If there is a universe in which we live, then why is there a universe? We will, if we look around and, and conclude that, that there is such thing as a universe, we will quite naturally ask ourselves the question, how did it get here? From where did it come? Is there something or someone that is sufficient to explain the existence of the universe? And John helpfully begins his gospel by saying, yes, there is. God is sufficient to explain the existence of the universe. And he created it through the agency of his word. That's a big human question, and we have an answer to it in the first verses. Where did the universe come from? It's the creation of God through His Word. Now, that leads us to a next question. If there is this God, then and He's capable of creating a universe, then He and I are very distant from one another. Because He's Creator, and I'm just a little tiny piece of the creation. And so there's a huge distance there, How can I know this God? Are you with me? Do you see the chain of reasoning? If there's a universe and God created the universe, how can I know this God who is the exalted creator? And I come to the conclusion that, well, I really can't unless he makes himself known to me. And John says, here's the answer to that question of human existence. And that is, he has He's not only made himself known by writing in the sky, he has come as close as he could to you by becoming one of you, taking on, yes, flesh and becoming one of you. So, you can know this God. So, the answer to the the question of from where the universe, the answer to the question of how can I know God, but there's another question that, that bothers us, and that's this. Is there something wrong with the universe? And then we ask the question, that's a theoretical question, but then we ask the personal question, is there something wrong with me? 
And most people, looking at the universe, looking at the human part of the universe particularly, conclude that there's something wrong with this universe. Something is not going right. In fact, oftentimes it goes very, very wrong. And then we, then we, then we look inside of ourselves as well. And we ask the question, is there something wrong with me? And, and, and most people, almost everybody that I've ever encountered and read comes to the conclusion that yes, there's something deeply wrong with me. There's something that does not work right in me. And I do things that are, that are harmful to myself and harmful to others. I, I, I don't do oftentimes the things that I know that should be the things that I should do and the best things to do. And there's something not right with me. And so, in terms of this first chapter, I find darkness. I find darkness in the universe. And, and, and more personally, I find darkness in myself. And so now I have the, the next big question of humanity. If there's a universe, if that universe has been created by God, if that God has come to us to be one of us, and if I find darkness in myself, then, then how can I possibly, how can I possibly, even though this God has become one of us, how can I possibly be in a relationship with this God? If this darkness is in me, and if we all dwell in this darkness, and the answer is that God became one of us so that He might make us God's children through faith in His name. That's the answer to the third question. If you find darkness in yourself, then you need to find light that is capable of, of overcoming that darkness and, and winning over and bringing you into the light. And if you find yourself estranged from the one who made you, then you need to find one who can connect you again to the one who made you. And that is the light. That is the Word who became flesh. That is Jesus Christ. And we're just in the prologue. We still have 21 more chapters. But I want you to see that already in this first prologue, in these first verses, we have witnesses bearing witness, testifying that Jesus is God, that He is the Creator, that He is the Revealer who shows us God, and He is the Redeemer who brings us back to God. That's the witness of this book. And that's the witness that we're going to be hearing over the next months. And as we hear these witnesses, we need to listen to them carefully so that we might do what we should do when credible witnesses testify to the truth. We should believe it. Let's pray. Our God, we have soared in these first verses of this book with the simplest of language and the most exalted of concepts. And we are spinning a bit as we try to comprehend this message that You, O God, are the Creator, that You are 
the Redeemer and the Revealer, and that you have done all this through your Word, who is Jesus Christ, who's one of us. And I pray for all of us, God, as we hear your Word read, as we hear your Word preached, that you would do for us what you say you do for those who believe, that you would grant us the right to become children of God, that you would grant us that new birth, that we might be set free from the darkness that is in us and that is in our world. And so we pray as we enter into this this fascinating study, we pray that you would continue to show us Jesus, that we might know you, that we might believe in him, and that we might be your children. And we pray this in his name. Amen.